Hello and welcome to Mad Hatter's Tea Party. I'm Wal Hattar. Today we're having an interview with Kamruz Aram, whose current show, Green Art Gallery, Reflections for a Room, is on from November 13th till January 15th, 2017. Hello, Kamruz. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No, it's, it's a pleasure. I mean, I've, I've seen your work develop with, the, with Green Art over the past few years, and this is the first time you've really actually kind of gone beyond the... I guess, 2D aspect. You've always had a little bit of it, but now it's, you do see it as a, as a scene or even as an installation. So we'd love to talk about that as well. But maybe we can start off some of the listeners to, I guess, the first phase of, of the work and how it reached here. Right. Well, I think a good place to start would be to look at the uh, series of collages that I uh, have begun in somewhere probably around 2009 or 10. Um, and which I didn't show for quite a while. There's something that I was sitting with in the studio. The collages were made. Uh, excuse me. The collages were made from um, pages of mid-century catalogs of uh, Iranian art, particularly one which was objects that were loaned to the U.S. by the Iranian government, uh, called 7,000 Years of Iranian Art. The collage series was then called 7,000 Years. I became interested in this idea of cultural nostalgia. Uh, the fact that many Iranians will gaze to their glorious past as a way to try to um, find meaning in their present situation. Uh, this is something that happens in museums. We go to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and we look at our glorious past in the Islamic art galleries, for example, um, and in the ancient galleries, or maybe especially in the ancient galleries for Iranians who talk about their 7,000 years of everything. Um, as I made these collages, I was interested in the way that the objects are documented. So the books that I was looking at, including the one that I mentioned, were uh, books that were mostly published in the 50s and 60s. And um, there's a particular aesthetic uh, to the way that objects were documented then. For example, you might find um, uh, an object with a bright red background or a bright blue background. And it made me think... Uh, about the way that we look at objects in museums themselves. And while museums kind of propose a neutral context for these objects, uh, I find that there's no such thing as a neutral context. Um, with, with the work you had before, and, and you can always see it here, you started concentrating on the details of a carpet or an object or something else, and then embe not embellishing, but kind of really expanding on that and making that detail the art piece in itself, correct? And that is, in a way, contemporizing a, a modern or, or an old-schooler way of, of, of looking at these traditionally pretty uh, rather than conceptual objects of, of, of art and kind of infusing this concept on. So in a sense, is that what you had intended as, as, as your critique on the older objects, or is that like an act, like a more of an evolution of, of how your persona saw the art and you as the artist? Mm -hmm. Well, in a way, I, when I look at uh, the way that, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. uh, Eastern art has okay. been viewed through a Western art historical lens, um, it's it's there's there's a perception that uh, or maybe a, a false perception that a lot of the ornamental works are necessarily decorative, mm -hmm. meaning that they're not meaningful, that okay. there is no concept. Um, my paintings, as early as uh, when I was a college student in the late nineties, uh, I began to see the Persian carpet as something that had meaning, that had concept, 
Um, and this was something that was brought to my attention by the graphic designer Morteza Momayez, who was uh, no longer with us, but uh, was sort of the father of modern graphic okay. design in Iran. Um, the idea of the carpet as something that functions very much like a painting, a rectangular object mm -hmm. that sits in the room and, and has meaning, uh, uh, became really important to me. And to see that these patterns did have meaning, I won't go into the details about what that meaning might be, but I thought that, um, that at that point the idea of ornament became really interesting to me and the idea that ornament could be meaningful. So uh, in a way it's not uh, so much about bringing meaning to objects that don't have meaning, but it's about maybe bringing new meaning to objects that at another time had a different meaning. Okay. And trying to renegotiate the history that uh, decided that these objects don't have meaning. Okay. And before we get into the show right now, I just wanted to take a, I guess, a side conversation about something you said, uh, where you had brought up the, the kind of the ancient Eastern art and then how people always look at Iranian art and, and reminisce. But there was a time in, I guess, er, er, the 2000s, where Iranian art was the flavor of the decade kind of thing. And it was all, everyone was going into the whole calligraphy, hijab, so on and so forth. And that was pop, not pop art, but just kind of mainstream mass produced. Everyone's an artist this decade was Iranian because they can. Right. <laughs> this is a complicated question because uh, there, there's definitely... A fair question? I think it's a fair question. I think there's a fair, you know, I think any critique of... Uh, a sort of, I don't want to, maybe artificial zeitgeist mm -hmm. or a sort of uh, market-driven zeitgeist uh, is, is a fair critique, I think. Um, but it's always complicated because, you know, how do you go through and separate which artists are charlatans and which ones are not, right? Uh, it's a very difficult thing to do, and uh, you risk... Uh, you, you, you risk uh, dismissing some artists that maybe you shouldn't dismiss. However, uh, yeah, I think there's a moment where the, the uh, Western art market mm -hmm. became interested in, uh, I think, probably first Iranian art and then Middle Eastern art in general. Yeah. Um, there was uh, an auction in, I want to say 2010 or 11, maybe, um, that was an auction, and I think it was Sotheby's auction, maybe it was Christie's, I don't want to get the name wrong, but um, of contemporary art, including Iranian and Arab arts. That was the title of the auction. And I found this uh, quite problematic because Iranian and Arab art are contemporary art, and they've been included in auctions in the past. So why now this uh, false inclusion? Yeah. It's a it's an, a false inclusion that's uh, uh, sort of an exotic, exotification of... Iranian and Arab art. And I think, sure, there were uh, a large group of artists and art students particularly who saw this as an opportunity. Um, and that's also a problem. But um, that's not something I really care to speak about uh, I mean, specifically. No, yeah, no, for me, with the, the direction of the question was you, you starting your art and then kind of developing your art, your art direction and really holding on to the to the historical Eastern aspect of, of, of that, while all yeah. of this was happening around you, and how are you able to still hold on to the truth of what you saw the art, rather than fetishize it in this post-avant-garde orientalizationism? Right, <laughs> right, sure, sure. Uh, that's a, also a very valid question. Um, I think for me, it was something that I became interested in very early on, in you know the late '90s mm -hmm. when I was in undergraduate. So I was a BFA student and 
uh, I was, you know, it was a time when identity politics was kind of um, uh, really popular mm-hmm. in the West. And um, I was seeing this sort of self-orientalization among some of my peers. You know, for example, um, I remember an Indian art student working with uh, spices, you know, Mm -hmm. to make, like, patterns with spices on the floor or something. And I I, I thought, you know, this is kind of... uh, This kind of hokey or corny approach to uh, identity was really problematic. Um, At the same time, personally... Uh, there's something that I became interested that uh, that I think it's hard to escape your own identity, yeah. and there is this. Uh, there are many artists of my generation and younger generations who uh, may be other with a capital O in the U.S. and um, decidedly work outside of their identity um, as other. You know, for example, somebody who sort of rejects their uh, mother culture as a way of pushing back against the Orientalist market. Um, So neither one of those was sort of where I came from. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was making work that I was very sincere about, and my interest was not necessarily uh, in using... Well, it wasn't at all in using exotic forms. It was about how did these forms become exotic. Okay. It was about you know. So the early work had very much to do with the question of representation, as uh, as brought about by Edward Said. And in fact, the um, the uh, collages that I mentioned uh, were made. Uh, my one rule that I had for the publications that I would use was that they were published before. 1978, which is, or 79, I think it was, where, uh, when Edward Said published Orientalism, because these publications were very much Orientalist publications until Edward Said's text, which kind of uh, changed the course, hopefully. I mean, I don't know if it really changed. No, actually, for me, I find this conversation interesting because I guess we went to college at the same same time, and my graduation speech was given by Edward Said. I was was 80, and I was lucky to have that. But then, but then, my work as as an installation artist was also about identity, but not that form. Yeah. And I ended up reading a lot of, I mean, Maluf's work mm-hmm. to to create some of the pieces because uh, we don't want to go talk about me more about you, but it's kind of to, to fall down the whole what what is an Arab artist and what is an Arab artist, right? Kind of this right. Change, which is which is why, at least for us, you've been able to to work on your work irrelevant of the the time being there, and you've had the chance to to really calmly develop it and grow it to where you are now. Yeah. That's, I guess, a brilliant segue to talk about where we are now. Right. So, like I said earlier in, in, in the podcast, right now your, your work, right now your work has a, uh, uh, a somewhat two and a half D or, or, in, or installation aspect to it, where that, the whole area becomes the art piece. And I guess even sometimes the viewer becomes part of the art piece. Mm-hmm. Um, how... Why did you Why did you move off the canvas to such an to such an extent now? Right. You know, mo- most of what I've done with my work and, and the way that my studio has evolved is uh, is quite natural. I follow it where it sort of takes me. So, like I said, it it, it began with the uh, collages, but as I was working with the collages, I thought more and more about the museum mm-hmm. as this site for cultural cultural nostalgia. And um, and also a site for uh, for the telling of history, you know. Uh, and as I 
looked at the museums and uh, and how these objects that were displayed there were uh, were displayed, I, I started to question the neutrality of the museum. And um, there is one interesting story that might that might be you know I, that I just remembered, which which might be a, a, a clue or a key to how I got to sculpture. And that is that uh, with these collages, my ideal context was to take them back to the museums in which this 7,000 years of art uh, exhibition was. And there was one of those museums where I thought this this would be a great context. I have a contact at the museum and a contemporary curator who then introduced me to the uh, curator of Islamic art, and uh, we met. And um, we got in an argument, in fact, because I was <laughs> I was interested in uh, going into the museum and uh, and showing these ob- uh, these collages and even uh, playing with the objects in the museum and seeing if we could recontextualize mm-hmm. the objects that they were displaying in the collection of Islamic art. And um, and this particular curator found that offensive, and you know. We had a little bit of an argument, and I think a lot of that had to do with this uh, curator not really being informed about contemporary art, not knowing anything about institutional critique or Fred Wilson or any of the artists yeah. that I kind of looked at as uh, as as model. So uh, I decided, well, why don't I just bring the museum to the work itself rather than taking the work to the museum? So the early work that first became sort of quasi-3D was... Uh, I, I made a painting uh, on raw linen, raw linen, which kind of is the uh, linen, which is the material for painting on uh, canvas. Linen is the high material, and um, uh, but also in the vitrines of a lot of these encyclopedic museums, they're lined with linen. So I thought that it would be interesting to sort of show uh, these collages on a linen wall, and instead of having the whole wall be linen, I stretched the linen on a panel made a painting on the linen, a geometric sort of abstraction. So the geometric abstraction becomes the backdrop, turns the tables on the idea that uh, ornament is something that's, uh, you know, for those people in the East and not for the West, Mm -hmm. as Adolf Loos would have it, um, and sort of makes geometric abstraction into the decorative, into the design. It's hard to explain without having a visual, but um, uh, so the collages were actually installed on top of a, geometric abstraction, which served as the backdrop for the collages. That then led to objects, because I thought, well, I'm, I'm halfway to the museum. Why not, well why not just yeah. go and make it sort of a display? And that's when uh, the Ebrage Group Art Prize uh, allowed me to actually mm-hmm. work with objects uh, and, and to work with a variety of objects. I went to find objects that were... Uh, replicas of antiquities that I bought in a museum store, objects that were made by, uh, there's a company called the Iznik Foundation in Turkey mm-hmm. who claims to make the most accurate replicas of Iznik pottery with the same techniques and materials. Um, I bought some genuine antiquities. Um, I was able to get, um, I was able to have some things fabricated to my design. So there was a variety of objects in that display and there was no didactic text to tell you what you're looking at. Uh, so this was to kind of question our ideas about object veneration and how we uh, assign value to objects. No, I mean, in the end, you walk in here and you can't tell if the object in front of the quote-unquote art piece on the wall yeah. is 
new or is it fabricated or is it, so you don't know which piece to look at which one to assign the value as you say which is the real and which isn't but in the end like which is why I said earlier on the viewer is part of the art piece because your whole art piece is the question I mean if I'm gathering that correctly the question of what do I see what do I look at where am I now in this history of political viewing I guess Absolutely, and 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 what does what provides you with a meaningful experience? So in this uh, in this case, I've gone to the extent that I think of the methods of display as the artwork themselves. So the object is the object displayed is no more important than the painting behind it, which is no more important than the pedestal that holds the object that's displayed. And in one case, I even have a small floor. Yes. Uh, the terrazzo floor, which is which becomes just as important to understanding. And nothing kind of exists autonomously. Everything depends on each other for meaning, and including in this case, the painting on the wall, which is uh, something between exhibition design and a mural. Uh, then, then for, for 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 the audience as collectors, okay, if someone wants to acquire a piece from 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 this current show, when 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 they take it back home, let's just say if it's not a museum, if it's a personal collection, and they want to put it in their house. Will we will we still have to paint the wall that you've painted here? Is that part of it? Would you come and paint that wall and then lay the image and then have the object in front of it? That's a good question, and I think that uh, you know some uh, much of this work is actually traveling uh-huh. to Belgium for a museum show. Um, and thank you. And that uh, exhibition may or may not have wall painting. May or may not have the same wall painting definitely won't have the exact same wall painting. This yeah. was very site-specific. So, uh, again, this is something that I'm interested in, the shifting context in which uh, artworks are displayed. Um, you know, it's ultimately not up to me. Like, I, if, 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 a, if a collector were to take yeah. the work back to their place and hang it on a red wall... Um, what say do I have in that? You know, maybe I do, maybe I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's something to be in dialogue with them about. But I think, um, for example, I've done some works with this uh, black and white striped wall. Yes, I remember this. And uh, this is something that uh, if somebody was interested in having that black and white striped wall, we'd have to talk about which wall so that I can decide what the exhibition design would be. And I'm open to that. I think it's exciting and interesting to, uh, you know, to design the space around... Uh, the work, but you know, I've became I've become very much interested in architecture through yes. this process. You know, the idea that architecture that that artwork becomes part of the architecture, but also it gives the it makes the architecture more meaningful. And I mean, in the end, if, if you look at it in a way, you're opening up its Camus Aram's reflections for a room plus open artists. Because if I take it home and then I put it somewhere and they decide to put a table or a vase right next to it, people can't tell then which part of where you end and where the person whose house it is begins and then again add different layers is already multi-layered look at I guess contemporary combination of eastern versus western belonging especially that in my parents house for say I do have Iranian carpets we do have sorry Persian carpets we do have things that all of a sudden start to accidentally match and accidentally belong and then you know, again, they keep going back to the viewer being part of the of the piece itself. So it's a living, breathing piece that is never the same, especially when they take it back. You're no longer the artist. Right. They are. Well, exactly, and I think mm-hmm. it's like that with all artworks. I mean, really, this is 
my point is that um, all artworks depend on the context in which they're displayed. Um, and the context in which they're displayed depends on the artwork to an extent as well. Uh, you'll see in a lot of my work, I've titled many of my paintings backdrop for dot, dot, dot. So, um, or ornament for. Uh, the idea of the painting becoming a backdrop in an interior. The last show was called, um, or, uh, what was the last show called? It was called um, uh, Unstable Paintings for Anxious Interiors. You know, so these, 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 these titles, uh, uh, you know, sometimes tongue-in-cheek raise uh, the issue of the painting as a backdrop. Ultimately, the painting, we, I, I feel that I have to accept that the painting ultimately has a partially passive role. The painting becomes, and most artworks in general, but the painting sits on a wall. It becomes a backdrop to whatever is happening in that room. Uh, you can't deny that as a painter. Um, the way that one of my musical heroes, Nina Simone, so much of her work is political. So much of her work, uh, you know, some of them are love songs. They're meaningful. Uh, it's meaningful music. There's another meaning, which is the kind of emotional meaning that you get from it, the experience of listening to it. But there are times when Nina Simone comes on in a restaurant yes. or in a ra uh, on the radio when you're driving. You're doing something else. The music is there. It's doing something to you. Okay. You don't know what it's doing to you. You don't think you're... Maybe you're not even listening to it. It's there, but it's affecting the space in some way. Maybe it's affecting the emotion of the space. You know, Luis Barragan, the uh, uh, Mexican architect, said that all architecture should be emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, that this uh, that so much of architecture is not emotional and all architecture should be emotional. Well, maybe part of the role of art is to bring that emotion into architecture, into a space. Well, well thank you. This was a, an interesting conversation about kind of art beyond just the walls and the history of it all and, and, and a bit of philosophy thrown here and there. I enjoyed talking to you and I enjoyed the show. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, the show is on at Green Art Gallery here in Circal Avenue in Dubai till January the 15th, 2017. Um, before we go off, uh, Kamruz, do you want to add anything to, to the listeners? Not at all. That's, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you, and uh, speak to you guys soon. Goodbye.